thank you all for coming. Um, maybe before I start, I think the first thing that I want to say is, is there's a lot of things that I'm going to share with you guys that's a, that is a, a, a body of understanding created by a lot of other people. Um, very little of it is, is what I have to say. Uh, I only um, did a little bit of effort of bringing a lot of things together in an, in an, in an ideal, in a an, way that it makes sense for me. And I'll be sharing that with you. Um, uh, right, so I remember growing up as a kid um, in a very sociable house. Or at least it, it, was, it, was, it was quite a, a, quite a sociable place. And I got introduced to philosophy. Uh, at first, it was uh, at our kitchen table. And, uh, and it was conversations late at night with my dad. And then a little later, when I, uh, when I took a gap year off to matric, it was more with friends and red wine. Um, but nonetheless, it was a good place. And, and we, had, we had good discussions. Um, however, I enjoyed mathematics. I liked mathematics a lot in school. So what I decided to do is to enroll for engineering. Because at least I could use a little bit of this mathematics stuff. And I guess like most parents, my parents may have been somewhat concerned about whether, whether that would be the right thing for me to study. Um, but off I went. Varsity. First year. Engineering. And it wasn't long into, into my engineering degree that I found that I had actually more friends in arts and humanities than most other engineering students. <laughs> now, uh, there was a bit of a problem with this, though, because most engineering students graft about 16 hours a day, and, uh, and most BA students do about six. Uh, so I struggle to get to six. So... <laughs> So what uh, 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 when my uh, um, when 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 me and my friend Minka found out that uh, Prof Prof Gagianu's two lectures on the philosophy of religion happened to coincide with the only two periods that I had in a week, uh, the solution was obvious. So. Um, so throughout my career, I've always been very interested in knowledge and how we create knowledge and use knowledge to make and develop fantastic technologies. Um, so, and uh, um, so what I would like to do is just share a bit of that journey with you, where I am in it and, um, and, and where it may be heading. And what I would like to talk to you about, about that is that what is a system? I think that's a very good starting point. I mean, as systems engineers, we often do a lot of things around systems engineering, and there's a, there's a lot of stuff that we do, but, but maybe, maybe it's a good thing just to ask, you know, well, what is a system? And, and I'm going to explore a little bit the, the notion of complexity. And then, what is models? And, there's a, and with, with regard to models, I'd like to talk a little bit about provisionality and, and being modest about our models that we create. And then... Through talking about these things, I'm going, going to try and weave my way towards these Lego blocks and playing a little bit of Lego. And uh, um, I've, got a, I've got a glass of wine and, 
and so do you. So, so in the challenge of getting there, I'll, I'll take my chances. So a system performs a function. Here's some input, some input stimuli, and then something happens, the system does something, and it has an output as a response. The system is also a collection of things. You know, it's a lot of things that interact in some way towards some common goal. So we get some input stimuli, and the collection of things would respond in a certain way, and it has some output response, and we would generally see some goal or some object, ob objective with regards to that. The system has boundaries. Uh, thanks to the fantastic SKA project, I really enjoy the project. Um, I'm going to rely a little bit of, on, on, on them for examples as well. Um, as you can see here in this, in this telescope, this radio telescope, there's, there's some boundary to the world around it. And what's important about boundaries is, is that boundaries create structure. Is it modern pointers? Hey, I got one of these. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, 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 <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll, uh, we'll, uh, um, <clears throat> I'll, I'll talk a little bit about limbs a little, a little later on. <laughs> so what, what boundaries does in systems is it creates structure. Just the notion of a system kind of predisposes that there's things that belong to it and there's things that doesn't. So, so, so by definition, there's some sort of boundary. There's some sort of boundary that you'd like to understand. What is this boundary? And if you say there's a boundary, you know, there's a boundary between the, the outer shape of this dish and the world around it. There's a boundary between the stand and the swell on which it stands. You know, there's part and so on. So, so these boundaries also create structure. It also contains this thing that we're looking at and, um, and, and situates some structure around it where what is quite interesting about the structure is that it is enabling. If you think about some input stimuli and some output response of a system, then the fact that it has got a certain structure set by its boundaries allows it to do a specific thing with some of the input inputs that it gets to achieve some output response. In this case, there's a lot of electromagnetic radio waves moving around and the structure that is afforded by the shape allow, allows it to be deflected and reflected and you can pick it up in a concentrated manner. You know, so, so, it, so it allows you to do something, something interesting. And with the structure, hierarchies are inevitable. You see here is one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, seven, seven. And it makes an array. So it's a so it's a radio array telescope. And it's got a head, a torso, and it's got some limbs. Yeah, so it's so it becomes a it becomes a hierarchy of things. What's interesting about these hierarchies is, is that it's not necessarily neatly nested. It it sometimes is it's just a little bit convoluted, sometimes a bit messy. Um, I remember recently uh, uh, with a client we were working on a processor and we were working on <clears throat> um, 
some computing and, and, and some interfacing and a housing for this thing. And we're all discussing about where we're going to draw the boundary. Where, where is this item going to be and where is that item going to be when we develop this thing? So, so you don't always know. Now, knowing that about systems, <clears throat> how is it that engineers make systems? And, uh, and how do we go, go about creating systems that's, that's valuable? And one of the first things that we need to understand, and it's a very, very important thing, is, I'll use a pointer for this, scientists investigate that which already is. And it's a very, very interesting world, because there's a lot of things that is, and, and, and that we're curious about, and we don't understand them fully. So, so, so scientists really explore, like exploring that space. On the other hand, engineers create with that which has never been. Yeah? So when we go about creating something, it's not, it hasn't existed before. You know, we, we're very brave people. <laughs> we, this, is a, this is a very risky business. You know? if, you, if you're going to make something and it, and it doesn't exist and, and you're going to introduce it into the world. So, so let me explain a little bit more about why I'd say that. For engineers to do that, we need to model a possible system. We need to, we need to create an understanding of what it could possibly be, because it doesn't exist yet. You know, we use cost and schedule models, project management, <laughs> and we use financial models, and we use systems engineering models, we use FEM models, design models, we use Excel spreadsheets, we use a lot of stuff, you know, to, to model what it would pos what it would what it, it could possibly be in order to create that system now we use these models so that we can then create it the dilemma of a model the dilemma of a model the real world is complex and i think what i need to do here is to just spend a little time on this on this notion of of complex and and, and complexity I often hear people use the word complex and then some other people think or may think that they've actually meant complicated and and then what happens naturally is people say that 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 there's like this juxtaposition between complex and complicated um, I personally think that complexity and complicatedness it's got nothing to do with each other. It's two completely different things. On the one hand, something could be simple. Yeah, it's very easy to understand. I can just look at it and grasp it. Or it could be very complicated. It's very difficult to understand. It may be even so complicated that one single person can't understand it. Like a, like a big system, like a Boeing or something. You know, it's, it's, really, it's really complicated. And then you get complexity, where complexity is about emergence. It's not about how things fit together in, 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 in a way that you can describe it, but, it, but it is about how things work together to create an emergent behavior that cannot be described by any of the individual parts working together. And that's something completely different altogether. So, by example, you could get something that's quite simple, that's very complex. 
And, and, and in this case, and I'm, I'm going to use a lot of his examples, but in this case I'm going to use an, an example that Prof. Paul Sulier usually used in his, in his classes and, and, and lectures. If you look at mayonnaise, have you ever seen someone make mayonnaise? I mean, it's, it's, it's egg and, and oil. We you know how complex mayonnaise is, yet it's a very simple substance. So the emergent property of this things that you throw together, it's like something completely different to what you expect if you looked at the constituents of it. But yet, it's kind of a simple thing. It's mayonnaise. <clears throat> However, if you look at a Boeing, it's really very, very, very complicated. It's very difficult to understand. But our task is to take the complexity complexity associated with the Boeing and to try to keep it as little as possible because if the Boeing interacts with the world around it and there's some emergence that's unexpected or that we can't ascribe to it being a Boeing, we may run into some serious problems. At the same time, I also think I just have to say that I don't believe there's something like zero complexity. I mean, there's, there's a lot of complexity involved with the Boeing because they do fall out of the sky. And uh, and, and if we could fully understand them, even though we also try to fully understand them and we work towards trying to do that, there's some things that emerges from the description that we make about a Boeing um, that, that comes about that makes them fall out of the sky. So, so that just gives you a little bit of an, of an idea of where I understand these concepts and how I play with them. There's a continuum of complexity. It's less complex and more complex. Then there's a continuum of complicatedness. You know, something is simple or it's very complicated. And, uh, and with that knowledge, let's talk a little bit about this complex world. Complexity is a result of very many components interacting with each other. Okay? Now, now note, <laughs> this specific example this is a model, so this isn't even the real thing. Um, but in, in, in the real space or in the real world, there's very many components, and all of them are interacting with each other, and they may have very small causes and effects between each other. If you can imagine a swarm of birds, you know, it's like, what is a school of birds? It's a, what, what is it? A flock of birds, thanks Paul. <laughs> At least I knew I, were, I was wrong from the ones, the flock of birds. Um, the interactions between the birds is very small, but the total result of the interactions between them is an entire flock moving through large amounts of space and changing its shape. So what we get in complexities is that there's a lot of things and they interact with each other and we could after the fact, look at it and say that there's some deterministic uh, cause and causal relationship that we can track, but, but we can't predict it. Now, what's quite interesting is if all the components in a complex environment is possibly or in somehow related to each other, where's the boundary? Where's the boundary? Now, earlier when I said that a system has a boundary, so, so where is this boundary if, if everything could possibly be related to everything else in some way? Well, the answer is kind of simple. 
the boundary is everywhere. And if you look about a, at a radio telescope and you look at cosmic background radiation, it's kind of a good example of it, though. You know, the boundary is everywhere. It's not necessarily at a specific place or space. So let's say we want to model something that's complex. And in order to understand it, we want to model all possible permutations. What would we have to model? Everything. Everything. Because the real world, this real place in which we live is a fairly complex place. Yeah? So in, in the end, we'd probably have to model everything. <clears throat> well, that doesn't make sense. <laughs> yeah? So just to use another example. If you recall, I also earlier said that this boundary, this boundary that I talked of, is very enabling. If I give you, you guys a bunch of notes, you know, a bunch of instruments, and I say, well, make notes, we end up with noise. Everybody would make some notes, and it would just be crazy, it would be very noisy. But if I said to you guys, there's a score that we're going to play to, now I give you some structure in that notes, it becomes something quite interesting. And we have music, and we, music that we can enjoy. So, <clears throat> where is the structure associated with boundary if everything is somehow related to everything else? And I think our task as systems engineers is to try and get that, or to try and describe that, closely enough so that we can go and make it. I'll talk a little bit more about that. So now let's think about this again. A system performs a function. But remember, now we're not asking what a system is. We're exploring the dilemma of a model. So there's some inputs. And uh, by the way, this specific system, my system, transforms. <laughs> it's not. It's important. <clears throat> now I say there's some boundary. So in an open system, there's some input stimuli, boop, and some of that inputs could be wanted, it could, you know, it could be what we expect, some of it could be unexpected, and we create some outputs. Some of the outputs could be desired, so what we want it to do, and some of it could be undesired. Now what happens if we acknowledge the complexity of the world in which our system is going to work? Huh? Kind of explodes. Lots of inputs. Some of those that we know about, some of those that we can't even ever know about. And the same with outputs. Yet, if engineers go about describing systems, modeling them, so that we can make them, then we have to make choices. Now, <clears throat> let me tell you about this example that I used when I was um, talking to some of the guys at, at, at ESCOM recently. I asked them whether this is a system. So what did you think half the guy said? <laughs> and what did, what did you think the other half said? <laughs> okay. <clears throat> Point is, it's not doing anything. Well, well let's assume it's a, a, a real kind of cook. <laughs> it's, not, it's not really doing anything. On the other hand, it may be experiencing gravity. So let's get this it's getting this input stimuli of gravity. And some output response is to contain fluid. 
So it's doing a function. Another one is, is, is it builds perception of a sweet, nice, bubbly, cool drink. And after this, I'm going to grab myself one. Because the marketing worked. Or at least so they hope. So, so it could be a system. But if I want to describe this Coke to make it, or either to tell you what I think about it, I need to choose what I am going to talk about and what I'm not going to talk about. So when I'm going to model something, I choose what's important and what should be ignored. I make a lot of choices. And because we make those choices, models are limited. So if we think again about our system, which is an interacting group of elements working together towards some common goal, and we want to describe that, we can't possibly describe it as it is or as it should be. Because we can't say everything about it. We use models, and they are limited. They cannot be perfect. Now, the interesting thing about that is that if we want to reduce complexity so that we can describe the boundary of something, we choose where that boundary is so that we can make it. If we don't choose where that boundary is, we can't make it. So we choose it in a way that we think would be enabling. But it introduces an error. It will always introduce an error. Now, the, knowing this can't possibly be an excuse for not modeling and not for not putting in a lot of effort modeling. It can't be an excuse for laziness or sloppy work. All it is, is it asks from us to be aware about it, of it, so that we can revise our models, so that we can try and see what happens when we implement systems based on our models, and that we can modify them. And asking ourselves how we should go about that, um, when should we go and test what we think, the ways in which something, something would work, and, um, uh, and understand the provisionality with the model. It's a, it's a provisional thing. So back to another ex engineering example. So these guys are designing a missile. Yeah? And there's a guy looking at aerodynamics. There's a guy who's creating some model for propulsion. There's a guy doing one for production. There's a, one, a guy doing one for control systems, you know, some structural guy guidance, and so on. And all of these guys are creating models to describe the system so that they can make it. What's very interesting is, is what's the errors in these models and what's the errors between the models as we make them? And being aware that they are there. So this brings me to the, to the real question about modeling, is, is when do we model? How much do we model? The reason for us modeling is, is, is to create sufficient confidence so that we can go and put what we think the, the system should be, what its boundary should be, what its structure should be, and to go put it in place. Now, using cycling as an example, you know, we can model cycling. And here's a guy cycling. What I found fascinating, this was, it was really, really mind-blowing when I realized this. 
A model of a guy cycling is not even in the same ballpark as a guy cycling. It's not the same thing. It's not even closely the same, the same thing. So, so what we do when we create models is it gives us an understanding. It may inform us in a way of what this experience could be. And it just gives us some trust and confidence about what this experience can be. But it's not even the same thing. Yeah? So, so you go and you model something and you say, yeah, I think we could do it like that. And you go, do it like that. And the doing of it, doing it like that, is not, it's not even close to the model. It's not, it's not even the same thing. It's like something completely different. It's something real or it's something physical where the model could have been a logical or abstract thing. You know, it's like something completely different. But we do model to get confidence about what this can be. Okay. So knowing all these things about modeling is they're provisional and we should be modest about them. We should revise them. We should adapt them. We should create them in a way so that we can revise them and adapt them. Now, that's going to bring me to something that's really close to my heart, and it's the world in which I work, and that's model-based systems engineering. So what is model-based systems engineering? In my opinion, it is a logical approach to sufficiently describe, model, a system, so that we can make, use, and retire that system in order to make people happy. And those Systems engineering purists note that I use the word people over there, as opposed to, to stakeholders. Um, and uh, I've added this little picture to describe what I mean by people. I told you, I, I had the disclaimer up front, right? <laughs> yeah, the, um, here we could have some system of interest, and there's some people involved with it, using it, and then there's some other people that maybe support it, and there's some other people that could have an interest in it, and there's some other people around it that may or may not even know what the potential inputs and outputs could be that they are part of. And if we make a system, at least on aggregate, and in a societal, political, economic sense, we want to make people, we want to make humanity happy with what we're doing. How do we go about doing that? <clears throat> As a systems engineering process for you, this is from MIL standard 499B that never got published, and from Robert Halligan's, he changed it a little bit, uh, PPI work. Uh, and it's, a, it's, a, it's a very nice model, it's a very descriptive model. So what we do is, is we look at what we would like to achieve with our system. So what input stimuli we would like to transform into some output response and we also ask ourselves and we should continue asking and continue revising that question what is the unexpected input stimuli and what is the undesired output responses and what are we going to do about it okay and we do it in this space and the output of that we call requirements so you know, system's got requirements yeah it's got to do this got to do that it's got to look like this it's got to fit in here and it's got to set of requirements then we use the requirements and we do design. So we iteratively ask ourselves, how would the system go about transforming those inputs into outputs? And what structure would we use to do that? 
Or how we would we structure stuff to do that? And that's the systems engineering process view. So what do we need to do create models in this space to do model-based systems engineering? Well, the first thing is, is if we're going to create models, we create them so that we can work together. You remember the, the, the missile guys, you know, the ones doing guidance, the other ones doing production, the other ones doing structure, etc., etc. We all need to be able to ask each other how is what we are modeling fitting and, 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 and talking to each other. So, so in order to do that, we create some meta model. It's in itself a model, note, and we should be modest about that model. <laughs> and, but but we, we, we create some meta model and some modeling notation. In other words, this is how we're going to use requirements. This is how we're going to say functions is based on requirements. And functions are allocated to components, and we create, a, we, we create a little bit of a language, a notation, in which we're going to do our modeling. We need a model database, and a place to store the information. I want to look at the information in ways and so on. So, so we need a database. And we need a methodology. Yeah, it's like time's arrow. Goes in one direction. Forward. And, uh, and how are we going to step through this time? What is our methodology of, of going through time? You know, so we're going to do a little bit of requirements analysis. We're going to do a little bit of behavior modeling, system architecture. We're going to verify and validate the things as we go along. And in this design, there's a lot of choice that takes place. And especially the cost of doing large, difficult engineering developments is, is involved with that choice. You, know, you, you choose something, and, and two, three, four, five months down the line, things have are, things are started to crystallize around that choice. It becomes expensive to change it. So, so how do you go about through time doing that? Now, now that's where, where all of us should have our wine ready because we're going to weave this to building Lego blocks. <laughs> now, if you look at time, you know, through time we create models, and in, and in the models we create, we, 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 we try and use them so that we can, that we can make useful systems for, for people. Our models are provisional, and we should revise and adapt them continuously. And through time, we keep on doing this, up to the point where we have sufficient confidence to do that which is completely different to what it is to model. And that is to make the thing, to put it out there, you know, or parts of it. And what I'd like to explore is, is the notion of intellectual capital in this process. So what is intellectual capital? It's got six things. Or it, it is actually six things. According to a model by Prof. Swart at the University of Bath, which I kind of like a lot, so that's why I use it. Okay. Human capital? Social capital, structural capital, organizational capital, client capital, and network capital. You remember this guy when, he, when, when the movie just started? Eh? And he was leopard crawling up those, those stairs and stuff. And he, and he, he just wanted a glimpse of this, of, this, of this kung fu competition. And you saw him at the end of the movie. <laughs> it's the skill and experience that's in people. And how that develops, grows and gets better. Social capital is a water cooler. In our office, it's, it's the coffee counter. 
Structural capital is the assets that's in, in, a, in a team or in a group of people working together. Yeah? And it's how they fit together. It's all the stuff that you have that, that's physical and it's, the, and it's the assets and it's the things, the, you know, the, the physical things, and, and, and also in the way in, in which they fit together. And organizational capital is the processes. It's the standards, it's the process, it's also a little bit of the culture that's associated with a group of people. Yeah, it's nice to be at the office at 8 o'clock or, or uh, this or that, whatever. You know, things, just these cultural things that develop in an office or amongst a group of people. We've got client capital. So that's what the guy knows about his expectations in terms of input stimuli and output responses. And it's also the guy that may, may have an interest in such a way that he would give you some, something in return for it. You know, if you, if you give him an answer, he could give you some money. And uh, then there's network capital. If you want to know a little bit more about systems engineering or, or model-based systems engineering, yeah, join in Cozy. It's only the price of a good bottle of wine. <laughs> you can tap into, into this network of knowledge. Now, what's interesting about this intellectual capital model is, is that if you look at a team trying to achieve something, that these parts of it is internal to them, and those are external to them, and they need to, in themselves, create some stru enabling structure to, to tap into those two external types of, um, of intellectual capital. Now, intellectual capital as a concept is not these separate things. It is them relating to each other. You know, so, we'd be standing at the coffee counter. We use some experience that Rousseau has in philosophy, talking about a client's expectations and some, some industry knowledge or standards that has evolved over time, looking at our processes and the things that we may need to come up with some solution to that. So, the idea of intellectual capital is actually all of these things working together at the same time, simultaneously. So what I'm going to do now with this, with this model is, is I'm going to flip it a little bit sideways. So we've got this intellectual capital framework, and I'm going to pop time's arrow through it. Uh, so at some point in time, there's some, there's some intellectual capital value in the organization, and it's a little bit like that... Uh, flock of birds. <laughs> I hope it's the right one. <laughs> um, where, where what happens is, is the intellectual capital that you have at, at, at a specific point in time depends. It, built a, it, it got adapted from some delta T, you know, some, some intellectual capital in the past. And the effect of this is, is moving forward Intellectual capital is not something that appears or disappears in a certain way. It's something that grows. It's something that develops. Now, that brings me to saying, now, how's, this, how's all this going to come together? You know? it's like, so we've got intellectual capital. We know that in what we do, especially if we want to describe things that does not exist yet, then we need to revise, we need to look back, and we need to adapt through time. And we ask ourselves, what can we do with human capital, 
social capital, structural capital, organizational capital, network capital, client capital, network capital, working together as some framework to ask what can we, what can we say about those things existing in order to say what, what can we do to change and adapt and revise the models that we're making. <laughs> well, this, this is something that, <laughs> that uh, a systems engineer's reality. <laughs> it's, just like, it's maybe a little bit of a frustrating reality, but it's a reality. You know, this is your desk. <laughs> you've, got, you've got like these function lists, open items, requirements, other requirements. There's some engineering handbooks and there's some data and stuff. What's quite interesting about this is this, you'll see that there's a lot of network capital sitting here. You know, there's a lot of human capital and a lot of structural capital in creating these things. There's, there's a lot of intellectual capital. You know, it's just like your little intellectual capital desk in, in, in front of you in a way. And knowing that, how can we ask the models that we create, the requirements, the functions, the structural, the architecture that we do to describe a system that we're going to make and reflect back on them, revise them in an intellectual capital framework. And the way that we can do that is, is to say, about the requirements that I have, how do they relate to the network? How do they relate to, to the client? How do they relate to what people know what it is in my organization to answer them. And the same with the design that I have, some of the functions and, and some of the architecture and things, and, and to ask with, by using this framework of understanding to explore the models that we create within that framework. So what we'd like to do is just to say that we've got some blocks, and we typically really want to try and create this but if we start playing with it in an in a intellectual capital framework and we start reflecting upon it all the time, we could maybe end up having an experience that's more like that. Yeah? It's like the innocence of children playing with their Lego blocks. And I think that's also what we should try and do.